Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I am excited to bring you an episode all about stress and the role it might play in the classroom. Now, we might not always consider stress as a positive thing, but in this interview with Dan Rosen, we're going to explore exactly what role it plays. I absolutely loved this conversation. I loved the talk at Research at Deutschland that it came from, and I can't wait to share it with you. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Rosen. It's great to have you here, Dan. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's great to be here. Thank, thanks for having me on. Now, we always begin with our guests and numbers to get a feel for who they are. And so my first question to you is, years as a teacher? Uh, just over 12 as a teacher in schools. But I, I taught a little bit before at university as well. So I don't, know, I don't know which one you want. I mean, it's up to you, entirely up to you how you interpret that question. Yeah, so just just over ten in schools, and then I was teaching at university for what four years, maybe not not as my sole job, but whilst I was doing my PhD, I was doing a bit of teaching, um, uh, teaching master students, undergrads, uh, that sort of thing. Nice. I mean, I think the the idea is the same, isn't it? <laughs> I know uh, something they don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think teaching undergrads is far easier. Uh, they're expected to come with a lot more preparation, and they ask uh, really interesting questions, and it feels more like a discussion. Uh, I think that's what we're trying to aim for as we get towards Key Stage 5, but uh, certainly less planning uh, is involved in your teaching university. Years as a school leader? Oh, what, what do you mean by leader? Is it in a leadership position or as a, as a senior leader? Uh, any leadership position. Oh, eight? Eight? Uh, I was head of year 11 uh, as my first leadership role. Yes, about eight years. Blog posts published? Uh, I was looking at this uh, the, the other day. I've only published seven blog posts. I've, I was on Twitter for about 10 years before I did absolutely anything, tweet or, or otherwise. Um, and yes, yeah, so I'm only up to about seven blog posts. Blog views? Uh, just over two and a half thousand. Uh, I'm hoping to get that up uh, at some point, but you know, uh, pretty happy. I mean, that's a really good ratio. What your blog address, Musings of a Doctor? Yeah, of a DR. I like to think... My, my initials are DR and I'm a doctor, so I thought musings of a DR is me and musings of a doctor uh, is also me. So, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, WordPress, yeah. Most important year group? Good question. Um, at the moment, I'd say year one, uh, but let my daughter go through year two and I'll let you know. Um, but, yeah, I've seen what she's gone through this year and um, knowing, obviously, I know year seven to 13 pretty well, but I think primary uh, anywhere where they're building foundations, I think they're the most important years. I see what progress she makes, but more importantly, like the, the foundations for the approach to being in school and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, for me, it's got to be year one or year two. Favourite year group? 12. That's easy. <laughs> uh, you get to delve into some really interesting things, some topics without kind of any pressure of external exams for us. And I don't know, there's this kind of, they've chosen my subject at that stage, they're really interested in it, and uh, they just want to learn, they're eager, um, and they haven't kind of hit university pressures, hit exam pressures, uh, and all that sort of thing, um, so yeah, that's my favourite year group. And number of tweets? Oh, under a thousand. Uh, <laughs> uh, as I said, I, I 
for a good decade or so. I didn't tweet a thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't tweet that much, really. Um, but I do consume quite a lot on Twitter. Nice. I think you might then take the the mantle of lowest number of tweets, which is a, oh, a, a, nice. an esteemed honour. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> it gives us a really nice range between <laughs> highest and lowest now. Who's the highest? Uh, so Steph Elliott, who's a teacher from Newcastle and maths subject leader, and she yeah. has over 100,000, maybe over Ooh. 120 if I remember. She Whoa. was season three. <laughs> yeah. Wow, um, that's a lot. But she's a prolific book blogger as well. Ah. So people will give her their books and and she will sort of talk about uh, about about those. So Dan, you're a teacher, scientist, perhaps biologist is the better word to use. I mean, I'm a biologist as a teacher, but I suppose uh, I'm a technically a pharmacologist is, is my uh, training. Um, but yeah, now I teach psychology and biology. School leader, and most recently the organiser of research at Deutschland. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Oh, like many young people, I went to university, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but knew I was really interested in neuroscience. Um, so I did a course that now doesn't exist, which is lovely. Uh, it was called PPP, uh, Physiology, Psychology and Philosophy. And I kind of chose options around to essentially study psychology and neuroscience. Um, I did that as my undergrad, loved it. Um, then got the opportunity to do a master's in pharmacology. Um, I was particularly interested in how drugs affected the brain um, and kind of I wanted to do it, learn more about that. So I went to pharmacology and then I kind of stayed at university. I did a PhD in pharmacology. I was looking at intracellular calcium signaling, specifically looking at how neurons grow, um, which is all of this got nothing to do with teaching so far. Um, and then I kind of had an opportunity to teach undergrads in kind of seminars. I, um, I did labs with them, teaching medical students how to, you know, um, do uh, labs work on on animals and things like that um, and I really loved it I just fell in love with teaching and I kind of at that point I was deciding should I stay in research should I go and do something else and then I was really lucky to be offered an opportunity to go and kind of teach uh, at a school uh, uh, Wellington College and I kind of took that with both hands saying okay well let's try this see how this goes um, if I don't like it it's not the end of the world if they don't like me it's not the end of the world you know I finished my PhD let's do it and and then I never looked back. I absolutely fell in love with teaching, uh, everything about it. Uh, teaching the students, planning lessons. I, I actually quite like marking. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, doing research. You kind of get your results and then you're like, well, what can I do with this now? Um, and so that's how I view marking. And uh, I did a lot of rugby uh, at Wellington. And yeah, that was it, really. Uh, became a teacher from that point onwards, never looked back. I did a PGCE uh, with Buckingham uh, as a GTP. And then... Uh, as part of that, I did my placement at uh, the Wellington Academy. Uh, I don't think it's any, called that any longer, actually. Um, and then I was offered an opportunity to go and uh, be a member of their SLT uh, down there. Uh, so I was in charge of curriculum and assessment, um, amongst other things, uh, including exams and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that was my first foray into senior leadership. I forgot to say, uh, at Wellington, I was head of year 11, uh, head of biology as well, um, and that kind of I absolutely adored uh, that leadership aspect of my job. Uh, and then, so yeah, when I was offered the opportunity at the academy, I, I took it with, with two hands again. And then Brexit happened. Um, my wife is uh, is German. And I don't know, it, it, it just kind of this opportunity in Germany came up. And, and it kind of, it was a head of secondary. It felt like the next 
logical step in my in my career. I'm not sure I was ready for it, but I put an application in and I was really and I was successful and I was obviously over the moon and it kind of everything came together. So now I'm in Germany, uh, St. George's uh, in Dusseldorf and um, yeah, I've been here five years now. And so the first few years you adjust to a country, you adjust to the school, you learn about it and you kind of make slow plans. And, and we've kind of reached a stage now where the school is is really, really thriving. We're really happy. We've just got our, you know, best ever IB results. Um and the staff body are doing some amazing things. And we're kind of ready, we were ready to kind of up the level of interaction we have with uh, the wider community. Everything's in, in shape in the school, um, but we need to push ourselves. We need to learn. And what better way to do that than, than hosting a research ed conference? You know, um, loads of the staff in the school are already active on social media and, and kind of engage with research um, to kind of inform their practice. But but we needed to kind of expand on that uh, rather than, than than drip feed it in because we, we, as I said we're ready for it and and that was it really um, uh, and then the rest is history we hosted the conference uh, and now we're talking uh, <laughs> online uh, about uh, about what I talked about yeah and like, I mean I think for me there, there are hundreds of wonderful talks at research ed but yours was probably the most interesting that I've been to because I was coming from a position of extreme novice, but the way you delivered it made it so accessible, which I think is, is the mark of a successful sort of session. And, and so the first thing I had to do as soon as it finished was obviously congratulate you and then say, can we talk about this more? Because I think anyone who listens to the podcast will be really interested to, to hear about this. Thank you very much. It's, it's lovely to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that uh, the listeners find uh, find it interesting. I think you know I, I pick stress as a topic because it's something that we all know ourselves. Are, you know that feeling of stress. We all know how it affects us, but and we all kind of have this impression of how it affects students. But actually, the reality is is obviously it's messy, it's complicated. But I think sometimes the the research we have and the evidence around it kind of simplifies things a bit for us. It makes uh, our lives a bit easier and not have to worry so much about stress. The focus of this chat will be stress, but as stress has colloquial connotations as well as sort of educational and physiological um, connotations, what do we mean by stress? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, when we talk as a biologist, a, a stressor is something that uh, is a change in the environment that your body has to respond to. And um, your body does that fairly uh, easily, fairly normally as part of homeostasis, you know, your body regulates your internal uh, conditions kind of automatically. It's really um, very straightforward. What we kind of mean by stress in this case is, is something a bit more than that. It's where you're perceiving something to be a bit of a threat or a challenge, uh, something that actually your body can't just deal with very easily. And you're going to have to be a bit more proactive about it. Uh, the, the challenge here is that actually you've got your brain is, is kind of... Uh, assessing the context assessing the situation and is making a decision to say actually this is stressful um, and that's kind of triggers off this whole kind of cascade of uh, internal uh, processes uh, that kind of make you then feel stressed so there are two main aspects to a to a stress response and um, the first one is called uh, fight or flight i think most people have kind of heard about that and so whenever you kind of are a little bit scared or afraid or feel threatened uh, your uh, brain you're kind of processing the information and then actually there's a decision that's made that says 
we need to do something different about this. We can't just let this be and kind of hope that it kind of sorts itself out. It might be there's a bear in front of you and just standing there's not a great plan. Uh, you want to do something. And so your brain uh, makes the decision and says, okay, this is stressful. And if you're interpreting the signals that are coming into you and saying this is uh, time to do something different. And so um, you set off this kind of fight or flight mechanism and that's really quick. Um, it happens uh, via um, the, your central nervous system and then you release some hormones and suddenly, boom, you are ready to fight or, or run away. And ironically, the physiological process is pretty much the same thing uh, for both fighting and running away. Heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, you start to sweat a little bit, um, you send all the blood to your muscles and, and away from your digestive system, and uh, you're kind of focused in um, on, on the, the threat at hand. You're kind of getting rid of all the distractions and your attention is directed uh, to what it is you need to be dealing with. Uh, and that's kind of a very kind of immediate stress response to a threat. I think the challenge we have is that everyone perceives different things as stressful and everyone responds to stressful things differently. And so we have a real challenge as teachers, as, as humans, really kind of understanding uh, what stress may mean for different people um, before we even look at the, the biology of it. The, the second part of, of stress is slightly longer term or takes a little bit longer to get going in the grand scheme of things it's still pretty quick you know we're still hitting maximum stress at about 30 minutes uh, and that's uh, it's called the hpa axis um and essentially this is where we have uh, stress hormones like cortisol uh, going around the body uh, to, to kind of change the way uh, your body is acting to again allow you to deal with this stress slightly differently again your heart rate might stay elevated uh, but your metabolism will also change. And that's kind of really important. If you are being chased by a bear, you don't just want to be able to sprint away from it. You need to be able to give your muscles um, sufficient glucose and oxygen to make sure you can continue to run away from the bear. Um, it's kind of a, a very evolutionarily old adaptation, um, this kind of stress response. Um, and that takes typically longer. And when someone is stressed, both of these things will happen uh, to a greater or a lesser extent. Um, and uh, how we deal with it is different, as I said before, for each person. Um, but that's kind of what we mean by stress in this context. It's kind of that immediate reaction and the, the slightly longer or slightly medium term uh, response. What we don't mean about stress is, is chronic stress uh, or, or some form of stress disorder. I don't think I'm uh, qualified to talk about the, those sorts of things. And, and they are actually, you know, really significantly more complicated than a, than a straightforward stress response and have real long-term uh, effects on, on the body and the mind as well. Um, but I suppose the context of my talk at Research Ed and, and what we're going to be talking about today is kind of that um, the normal stress response, which uh, most people go through when something is challenging or threatening or a little bit scary, um, and then the body's response to that and then how that affects our memory. That's a, that's a really clear distinction and fascinating. I could listen to you talk about that all day. From what I took from your talk, there seem to be two key areas that we can examine the impact of stress and its relationship with, with learning, so to speak. And the first appeared to be the encoding process. What role does stress play in that encoding process? Yeah, for me, this is probably the most interesting because it's the slightly counterintuitive uh, role. Um, people think, okay, when I'm stressed, I can't learn anything, I can't do anything, because all I care about is the stressful event. And actually, I think the research uh, suggests this might not actually be the case. Uh, some of the early research um, 
suggest that actually stress might not even be a hindrance. It might actually be helpful. Um, one of the classic studies that was um, in the mid 90s was showing how actually when you uh, prevent a, a stress response from happening, when, when you're hearing a story and you're trying to recall aspects about it, when you prevent the stress response by using a drug called Panolol, actually you prevent uh, the memories uh, or things being remembered. And it's really interesting. Um, it's linked really closely to arousal. And I think this is where um, we kind of can't look at stress in isolation. This study was looking at arousing stories and actually it was the arousing or the memory of the arousing story um, that got prevented uh, or, or kind of decreased. And so in this case, the stress response is actually kind of mediating uh, the, the encoding of those memories uh, when someone is aroused. Uh, and by aroused, I'm talking about a positive emotion um, to, to a situation. And, and so we already kind of for a long time have known that uh, preventing stress kind of prevents arousal mediated uh, memories during the learning phase. And, and there's been quite a lot of research on that since. Um, we can artificially induce uh, stress by giving people cortisone. Um, uh, not necessarily the most ethical thing to do, but you know it has been done uh, <laughs> quite often. And again, when, when we give people uh, cortisone to mimic a, a stress, a feeling of stress, actually their memory improves, especially for cued recall. And so we kind of have this uh, basic idea that when we artificially manipulate the stress response we can um, increase or decrease memories accordingly and and the initial indications are that actually stress might be helpful for memory uh, encoding for us that during that initial learning phase if we are slightly stressed actually do you know what we're more likely to remember things it, it is quite intuitive because of the link with arousal when people are positively aroused um, actually they tend to remember better We've known for years that emotions are linked uh, to memories. And there's some really wonderful classical studies in psychology about how emotion can help uh, people remember. Um, but actually, you know, it's not a surprise. If we're having an emotional response to a situation, we may get a little bit stressed by that, even if it's not, you know, super bear scary. It might be a little bit threatening, but actually that seems to have uh, a positive effect. And I think from that point onwards, once we knew that, it was all about seeing whether that actually applies in real life because it's all very well injecting someone with cortisone or giving someone uh, propanolol to reduce their stress but that's not actually what life is like in the classroom you know that's not what life is like when you're walking uh, down the street and unsurprisingly i think uh, it's easy to say that in hindsight um there's been loads of uh, studies suggesting that actually it's the same when you uh, induce stress in a kind of a real life situation way um, there's quite a few stress tests, uh, making people put their hands in cold water and uh, not show pain or, or making them uh, give a speech, for example, about something they, they don't know about in front of lots of people who are judging them. Um, we can do all kinds of things to put people in stressful situations and uh, pretty much uh, quite, a, well, quite a significant number of studies have shown that when we do this, we see the same effect on encoding. We see that actually there is a slight positive impact, especially when there's positive arousal as well. Um, we can see that there is this kind of uh, improvement in memory uh, when the stress happens during the encoding phase. And so it feels counterintuitive. If people are a little bit stressed, then actually their memory improves. But, but that's what the research says. And most importantly, there are very few studies that show that stress around encoding inhibits memory. And I think that's actually, for me as a teacher, that's probably one of the most important lessons there is that actually 
even if students are a little bit stressed, it's not going to make a negative impact. And so I don't need to worry so much about it. If anything, the stress is going to be a little bit helpful. And, and so um, I think it's really interesting uh, when you actually start to look at what stress looks like in the learning phase, the encoding phase, um, it can be slightly helpful. The counterintuitive nature of some of the most important things in education has come up actually a few times this season, but also over the last you know 15 years of my career, some of the most important things I've learned, I have initially rejected because of how counterintuitive they were. So, you know, I'm almost maybe a bit more open to the, what you're proposing because I know that actually there's normally some uh, some leverage. I mean, if anyone's interested in going to the the source material, what yeah. what's your like? This is the paper that will provide you access with to all of the other papers. Um, there's a really good review article in uh, Nature Science. Of, I can't remember the actual paper. I can probably find it if you give me two minutes. Um, but it's by uh, Schwab, um, Schwab and one of her colleagues. They're in. Uh, they're actually based in Germany, actually. Um, but they've done a lot of work on this, and there's a really nice review article. Um, and now I'm under stress. I'm under pressure. I'm not going to be able to find. It. I'm not going to be able to find it. Oh, here we go. Now I've got it. There we go. Um, it's uh, in the uh, science of learning. It's nature uh, neuroscience of learning. It's by uh, Schwab and Fogel. So uh, Suzanne Fogel and Lars Schwab. Sorry, uh, uh, Schwab is uh, Lars Schwab. Um, and there's a review article in the science of learning. I think it's published in 2016, and that kind of takes you through kind of a very brief history of what we've learned about um, stress in the classroom. It's called Learning and Memory Under Stress, Implications for the Classroom. And um, you, if you read it yourself, you'll see a lot of the studies I've kind of uh, focused in on for my, for my research ed talk. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. There's actually loads more stuff in there that I wanted to include in my talk in terms of how um, actually under stress, you, you switch different, you process information uh, differently and you use a different um, system uh, to uh, learn when you're under stress. I didn't get to talk about that. It's actually uh, quite complicated, but if you have the time to look at it, it's, it's fascinating stuff. The idea that your brain uses a, a different uh, mechanism or a different process to kind of uh, deal with decision-making, uh, as it were, and, and that therefore has a knock-on effect on, on memory as well. So uh, Schwab and Vogel are certainly my go-to people when it comes to stress in the classroom. They've written some wonderful stuff. They've done quite a few studies on it themselves as well. Fantastic. You know, I, I know that listeners love a keystone paper because then that opens the doors to many different directions. So they'll be really grateful that you that you share that with us. The other aspect would appear to be the retrieval process. So when we're trying to sort of retrieve those memories that we've made, you know, from our long-term memory, what role does stress play in this process? Yeah, I think this is where. Uh, this is more intuitive. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not good. Um, stress is is shown, obviously, and I think we can, I don't like using anecdotes, but I think we all kind of know anecdotally that when we're trying to remember something under stress, I've, I've literally just demonstrated it. Um, actually, we struggle to retrieve um, information and uh, kind of when people are stressed, they certainly perform worse on um, memory tests. <laughs> and there's quite a lot of research out there. It's not, again, it's not a surprise. If we artificially give people cortisone again, um, we, we really impair their ability to recall uh, aspects. Um, and interestingly, it doesn't really have an effect on recognition. I, I can come to that later, but certainly on free recall, stress has a real negative impact on, on your ability to do that. So what, what would the distinction be then between 
those yeah. two? Yeah. So if you imagine, if I'm asking you to, um, if I'm asking you to remember who you saw yesterday in the supermarket, and I asked you to describe them and just gave you free recall, um, you would have to think hard and then say, okay, I remember seeing a lady. Um, she was wearing a blue dress and had a black jacket on. And, and you might be able to do that for one or two people. Recognition, on the other hand, is when I show you some pictures of people and say, who do you recognize? Who do you remember seeing yesterday? And um, it's kind of one is acute recall and the other is, is less, uh, is pure free recall. And I think it's really important when we talk about recall to, to d distinguish what we are talking about, because I think one of the, and I, I kind of made this, I alluded to this in my talk, one of the reasons why students, I think, go to the easy option of rereading notes before exams is because it makes them feel comfortable. It may, gives them this feeling of, no, 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 I do remember. It's okay, I'm, I'm cool. You know, do I remember the equation for uh, working out uh, you know, speed distance time? Do I remember that? I'll look at my notes, I'll go, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. I've seen that before, brilliant. Okay, phew, I do remember. That's very different from sitting there with a pen in your hand and saying, What's, how does speed, distance and time relate to each other? Because one puts all the onus on you and the other one is just, can you remember having seen it at one point, at some point ever? And it's really interesting that the stress doesn't have an effect on that recognition. And therefore, I think it kind of interlinks with those students saying, uh, OK, I've seen it, good, comfort, and they decrease their stress themselves. Um, but that is really important distinction because when we're doing memory tests, it's important uh, what memory we're looking at. And all of the studies that look at retrieval um, look at both, or most of them look at both, um, because they want to make that decision. And what you find time after time after time is that um, stress around the time of trying to retrieve, be it zero minutes, 25 minutes, 90 minutes before, uh, it always has uh, an impact, a negative impact on the ability of people uh, to recall. What, what I do find interesting, actually, is, is at the beginning, I said, you know, there's two kind of main mechanisms of, of physiological stress. You've got the fast one uh, with uh, by your nervous system and, and adrenaline and noradrenaline. And you've got the slower one with cortisol. Um, and what they've tried to do is try to work out which is having those uh, having those effects. Obviously, I think it's not a surprise that both have a negative effect. Um, but what I think is, is really interesting is that there are some studies that show that even after the cortisol um, is gone, there's still a negative effect. And, and for me, that's fascinating because if we're looking at how can we combat the effects of stress, just removing the stress and calming people down isn't going to be enough. You know, even after the cortisol has gone out of the body, you're still, or people are still feeling the effects of it. So our, our, strategy to try and make people not feel the effects of stress well first of all it's going to last 90 minutes anyway so that's the length of an exam if you're talking in secondary parlance but you know or even longer than a double lesson so you're, you you know you can't do much about that anyway but even after the fact just the act of calming someone down and bringing their cortisol levels back to zero getting their heart rate back to zero actually that might not even make a difference because the effects of the stress on, on the retrieval has already happened and will continue to happen because of other mechanisms that are now kind of happening uh, as a result of your initial stress response. And so as a, you know, as a school leader, as a teacher, how can I prepare my students to not feel stressed when the moment they felt stressed, it's over. I can't do anything after that point. Um, and I think for me, that's the next kind of question. The next stage is what, what can we do to prevent students feeling stressed in the first place? rather than just looking at a way of calming students down, although obviously that is important. 
I mean, it feels like our bodies are geared up to make learning the most impossible <laughs> task or certainly retrieval. I mean, it's certainly not necessarily what we've been kind of, we've evolved to do, but we are actually fairly good at learning. And I think if you imagine that the actual learning phase is, is, is fine, like you say, that stressful, that retrieval, um, it feels like we're not geared up to it. But actually, I think we are. And I think this is the, the kind of, again, slightly counterintuitive, given everything I've said. Actually, we are built to retrieve. We are just built to retrieve things that we know really well. And I think this is where we, we come to the question of how do teachers or how can teachers help students mitigate the effects of stress when they're trying to retrieve? And I think all the evidence points to low stakes retrieval practice. I, I, I know this comes up quite a lot in many aspects of teaching and learning, but um, there are two main studies, uh, which I think are fairly well uh, known uh, kind of in the Twitter sphere, but maybe not necessarily well known enough in, in schools. Um, the, the biggest one for me is, is, the, is the Smith study um, that, that looks at the effects of retrieval practice um, on the effects of stress uh, in terms of memory. And uh, this was done in 2016, actually, at the same time. And it is a really, really impressive uh, study because they, they kind of I mean, in psychology, we talk about making sure that you counterbalance and that you make sure your groups are independent. And, and if you're doing repeated measures and, and all these kinds of things, you have to take into account. But it's a really elegant study where they compare retrieval practice with, and they call it study practice, which is essentially rereading. And they kind of do this, they, they group the, the, the individuals really well so that they all have to learn things in one order or a different order. They get uh, quizzed on one order or a different order um, and at the end of it um, they they end up with uh, a beautiful way of showing that actually retrieval practice essentially prevents all the negative effects of stress and for me if ever there was a reason to do retrieval practice that is it you know we're, we're looking at a way to, to prevent students from uh, we're looking at a way to increase students' ability to do well in exams or to do well in tests. But um, if stress is one of those reasons why they do badly, well, hang on a second. We have really strong evidence to suggest that uh, retrieval practice prevents the effects of stress, and, and significantly so in, in kind of all situations, uh, be it in a non-stressed or a stressed situation. So um, I think as a teacher, going through all of the research and looking at everything about how stress affects the body, um, this one study on its own tells me as a teacher, what can I do to prepare my students for exams, for tests? And this is applicable to not just, you know, year 13s, year 11s. We're talking about every single student here because we don't know how students respond to stress. We don't know what causes them to be stressed. Why are we making an assumption that that kind of 10 minute quiz on a Thursday period three is any less stressful than the big GCSE exam uh, you know the first exam that's coming up in the session the point is is that we shouldn't we can't control that I have no way of knowing that about my students but what I do know is if I do low stakes retrieval and I practice it often then my students won't feel the effects of stress even if they have a stress response so even if they are physiologically stressed it doesn't affect their memory or their ability to recall so that's what I can control so that's what I should do and uh, for me that was this this paper kind of on top of all the other evidence about retrieval practice, on top of everything else we, we know about retrieval practice, this for me was the, the game changer. It was the, okay, we're basically saying it doesn't matter if you get stressed because you're still going to be able to recall. And so back to your original statement, you said we're not, evil, you know, we're not geared to retrieve. Actually, I think we are geared to retrieve. We're geared to retrieve 
when we've practiced lots and when we know we can retrieve, you know, if I put, you know, you under immense pressure and said, can you remember your name? You'd have no problems. If I said your date of birth, you'd have no problems because you do it all the time. Um, and I think that's the key here is we need to make it so that the retrieval is just normal. It's what we do and it's what we've done a hundred times before. So I'm not stressed about it because I know I can do it. That's brilliant. You've almost got this, you know, the different branches of science are coming together to support, you know, on top of the, the psychological work that we've had in retrieval practice, you know, we're not thinking, okay, we can put the, the body and the psychology together to make something really, really robust. I mean, just out of interest, what would your ideal retrieval practice setup be? Would you be looking for all of your teachers? You know, maybe hypothetically, if you don't want to talk about um, yeah. St. George's. I, I mean, I think obviously, you know, I'm not going to be foolish enough to say that every single subject does it in the same way. I'm, I'm, one of the, the most humbling aspects of being a leader is understanding the differences and the nuances of, of each subject and how they approach memory and, and kind of retrieval in that sense. Uh, I think probably as a primary teacher, you're probably more acutely aware of the subtle differences between those subjects. But when we start to say, you know, we could debate all day about the difference between knowledge and skills. But um, I think for me, what I would like to see is that we are consistently asking students to retrieve information about things they've just learned about things they've learned a little bit ago and about things they've learned a, a long while ago and by consistently i mean i mean kind of i mean every not necessarily every lesson it doesn't work if you know you've got a science double practical a science teacher i'm a science teacher i'd say hang on i need i've got 100 minutes to do this practical and i know it's meant to take 110 minutes i've not got time to do my retrieval practice okay fine but in reality we're talking something every opportunity why not because you know we know from the you know that it's going to help students um link things to you know if we're going to talk about retrieving something we've done recently in terms of building our schema um equally you know if we're talking about space learning we need to we need to make sure that we are consistently uh, revisiting these things so i would say regular and often i know that's still probably not really answers your question but i would include in that and, and i do this myself as a teacher I ask them things like, okay, well, how would you go about answering this question? I'm not asking, asking them the answer to the question. I'm saying, how would you approach it? You know, what does the mark scheme say you need to do? And I know this is fairly kind of key stage four, key stage five heavy, but asking students to say, well, okay, well, what does an evaluate, evaluate command term? What does that mean? Can you recall the different things that need to go into an evaluate answer? And can you recall what goes into a discuss and what goes into a compare and contrast? Because if you can recall those things, then in the exam, you're sitting there and you see evaluate, you don't panic and get scared and not remember because actually, you know, one of the biggest things students do is they write a perfectly lovely answer, but it doesn't answer the question. And, and, and I think, so for me in my school, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm expecting my staff to, to look at retrieval for that element too, because that's an important element in an exam, but it's also an important stressor. What does evaluate mean? Oh my God, I, don't, I, I can't remember exactly what I need to do. Is it strengths? Is it limitations? Is it... Ah, and if they can't do that bit, well, it's over. It doesn't matter how good they can recall everything else. Um, and so I think, you know, it's about putting everything in place so this becomes the norm. This becomes the habit. We're teaching students to do this at home. You know, we've moved away from um, projects whereby, you know, we get students to do uh, a piece of research for homework. Okay, that's great. It's lovely. It's interesting. And there is a time and a place for that. Totally. But actually, what we need to be doing is encouraging students to do self-quizzing at home because, Actually, if they're self-quizzing at home, 
they get all the retrieval practice benefits and they get into good study habits and it just makes their life much easier. If you're asking them to do things that they can just look up on a computer or um, they can just ask their friends to help with, well, that's lovely and there are times and places for that, but, but that's not the kind of the, the study and the learning habits that we know from psychology will help uh, and it also is not going to help us at all with the stress element. So um, yeah, so back to your original question, regular often, as often as possible, um, if only just to kind of stimulate kind of the the process of, of generating our schema to build things on, hang things on. If that's the only time we do it at the beginning of a lesson, that's better than nothing. Um, and I'd rather something happens than nothing happens. Yeah, I think, I think that's perfect, you know, built into the practicalities of school life, you know. Yeah. I mean, Kate Jones was at Research at Deutschland. She's got lots of ideas, particularly in the second book when I read it. There were lots of different ways, you know, so it wasn't always... A, necessarily a quiz but there were ways to encourage retrieval in different scenarios so i think you're you're absolutely right now this next one might be a bit of a loaded question but in my opinion many often poorly referenced articles suggest that stress brought on by a timed element for instance have uh, has a negative impact on learners and the learning process to the point where we shouldn't ask them for instance to memorize their tables through retrieval practice. You know, listening to you, it feels like those statements and such statements contradict the available research. What do you think? Uh, I think, <laughs> I, th I think, yeah, I would say, I would say uh, the timed element is, is not a concern. Uh, I, I'm not going to say for every student, as I said at the beginning, some students, we don't know how everybody responds to stress. We don't know what everybody's physiological response to stress is. But I think for the majority of people, during the learning process that timed element isn't going to have a negative effect and it might have a slight positive effect therefore you've got to say well okay it's not going to have a negative effect so what would the reasons not be to have it and if the reason not to be is because you might have someone who might end up having a stress response okay i think we should deal with that on an individual basis with that student um to help them through it because actually it could be really beneficial for the other students i think you've also got to remember that this is but one aspect of teaching and you know any experienced teacher will know that if you don't start to set time limits things drag on and actually you've got to have some some kind of uh plan to your lesson everyone has a plan to their lesson well if you're just gonna let things drag on because you haven't set that time limit well that is another factor you have to to to, to consider now that doesn't mean you have to time everything to the second and to the minute that can feel very regimented but certainly for me during the encoding process a, a timed element would have no negative effect um, or maybe it might be for some students, but actually the positives certainly outweigh that. And again, it gets them used to that stress. It's, it's a retrieval practice. Um, we're getting them used to it. Ideally, the retrieval practice should be low stakes. I mean, I think all the evidence points to a retrieval practice as low stakes is far better than retrieval practice high stakes, because actually, if it's retrieval practice high stakes, it just suddenly becomes an exam. And, and we want to avoid that. But again, we can normalize times, you know, if, if the normal routine is this is timed, then that's okay. Um, as students will get used to that over time and we can make that part of the low stakes testing. Um, I think to blanket and say timing is bad. I mean, we time break times. Do people get stressed out about the, the timing of break times? No. Do they get stressed out about timing lessons? No. Do they get time stressed out about the time they have to play on an iPad? No. Okay, so you know, in the grand scheme of things, what is the stressor? What is it that's causing the stress to those students? The timing element, you can only, you've only got 10 minutes to answer these 10 questions, or is it the fact they've got to answer the 10 questions? Because if 
we use positive language and we talked I talked about positive arousal uh, early on if we're using positive language to talk about the timed task we're about to do well actually we're likely to see more benefits you know if we're saying okay we're just gonna you've got 10 minutes this task is going to take 10 minutes and you're going to answer as many questions as you possibly can i want you to have a real good go at it kind of we're already kind of positively arousing the students and, and that's going to have a positive effect on memory that is that is very clear and actually the timed element can be part of it you know it's just part of it see how far you can get to and then you can use that if you want to as a challenge for some of your uh, students who like a challenge and say okay last time you answered five questions this time six great or you can say don't worry about it it's all good we're going to just do as many as we can um and, and be positive either way about it so for me i, I don't know I, I think the if we're going to talk about stress specifically i don't think there's any strong evidence to suggest that the timed element uh will have a significantly negative effect because of stress and i think therefore the decision should be about how else you want to set up your classroom how else you want to set up your your lesson and, and everything else about it i hope i haven't thrown you under a, the proverbial bus if if so just push them my direction <laughs> it, was all, it was all my fault yeah and um, i mean it seems to be a conflation like you were saying at the start between stress as you've defined it for this conversation and almost long-term yeah. sort of stress conditions then kind of disorders is the correct word you know like anxiety yeah. I, I think when you're looking at you know long-term anxiety disorders or even something really specific like ptsd you know as teachers we are woefully inequipped and and actually it's not fair to ask ask us to, to deal with that it takes psychologists and doctors long a really long time to help people deal with those things and and to think that we can uh, magically have a solution for those students is, is impossible it doesn't mean we should ignore them. Of course not. But there is a there is a difference between, you know, um, having a diagnosable um, disorder or a long term chronic stressor um, at home. You know, there are many things that cause chronic stress that, you know, difficult home lives, all kinds of things which we cannot, you know, we would love to have an influence on. Um, but as an individual teacher in your classroom at that time, can you take that into account? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can. And is it reasonable to expect people to do that? And I think, therefore, let, let's focus on that kind of the, a student stress because they haven't done their homework and they know they're going to have a quiz in it. That's one type of stress that we can look to deal with. Are they stressed because they've just had a fight with their best friend? Are they stressed because they've got paint on their dress and they know that um, it, it might not come out? Those things are normal, everyday stresses, which understandably stress kids out. It's not a problem. But should we be should we be taking that into account or should we be using that to our advantage? Um, and I think uh, that's the difference for me. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say, oh, don't care about stressing kids. That, that's definitely not what I'm saying. Um, but I think we're talking about very two very different things here. We're talking about kind of um, <clears throat> long term chronic diagnosable stress conditions or something really, really acute you know, a bereavement, something like that, 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 that actually is far out of the realms of this conversation. That is a whole different uh, ball game um, to, okay, stresses in the classroom, things that will stress students out, but that we can, we can deal with and we can utilize. Quite naturally, you have filtered in things that are helpful to the teachers in the classroom. Is there anything else we can do to introduce the optimum level of stress into our lessons? Oh, yeah, that is a good question. I think if I'm honest, I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. And I would say, I would say our best bet is not to worry, actually. You know, if we start going into the minute details of what we can do, the time and effort it's going to take to plan around stress, I think 
I think we're, we're diverting time away from something else that could be more useful. I think the very fact of the, the counterintuitive nature of this is that it's not going to be harmful, but it might be beneficial. I think for me is enough to say, look, leave it. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about, is this going to cause stress for these three students or how can I, uh, it's, it's a lot of effort for potentially not much gain. So I would actually say, look, the best thing that we can learn from all of this is don't worry about it. Best bet is just do your task. What do you think is the best thing to do to help these students learn this information, to retrieve this information, to practice using this information, plan your task. Don't worry about the stress during the encoding phase. Teaching can be pretty stressful. And again, I'm talking about raised cortisol levels as opposed to something that might necessitate time off work, yeah. you know, um, for a proper treatment. Is there anything that you think you've said or that we've covered that can help shape our behaviours to use stress as a force for good in our in our own roles in the classroom and school in general? Yeah, I, I, honestly, yes. Um, I wrote a little blog post about it in terms of a leadership context. context. Uh, I think the answer is we should practice what we preach. You know, if we're asking students to do low stakes retrieval practice uh, because it will help them remember stuff and when in a stressful situation, it will mitigate the effects of stress. Why don't we do that as teachers? And, and I wrote my blog post from the context of a leadership position in terms of drafting emails to parents, um, in terms of practicing challenging conversations with staff and students, um, because by doing that deliberate practice, be it retrieval or, or anything else, we are putting ourselves in a situation that when it becomes stressful, even though we will definitely be stressed, we can still retrieve the information that we want. Um, and especially parent meetings for me, um, you know, that's a huge stressor because you're in a room with someone who cares the most about a child. And, and obviously as schools, we care about children deeply as well, but sometimes there's conflict there, even though you, everyone really does want the best thing for, for, for the student. And so that's a very, very stressful situation for everybody involved and, and knowing what you want to say, practicing what you want to say, practicing with a member of staff, that email, what does that look like? That can de even though I'm going to feel that stress in that moment, Actually, I can still say what I need to say and what I want to say. And the same thing applies in the classroom. The same thing applies to teachers. You know, are you practicing those explanations of really tricky things? Because, you know, there's nothing more stressful than explaining something to a class of students. Then everyone going, nah, I have no idea. Can you explain that again? And then you go, oh, well, that was the only explanation I had. Ah, am I going to repeat what I just said? That makes no sense. Ah, now I'm stressed. Or what do you do when you're following the behavior policy and a student, you know, doesn't follow what you want to do and now you're stuck well what happens next have i practiced the steps in the behavior management policy so that i know what to do when you know little johnny does x y or z that i have never encountered before and and so for me it's about deliberate practice that kind of whether it's retrieval or otherwise and and i think that's why you often see these kind of experienced teachers who kind of look as though they're so unstressed well actually probably because they are you know if you've taught a topic a hundred thousand times Actually, no, no, maybe not that many times, but you know what I mean? If you've taught it a significant number of times, actually, you have 10, 20 explanations in the bank. And, and when three different children need three different explanations, you're not stressed. You've done it before. Easy peasy. But for the ECTs, you know, not only have they never planned their, this lesson before, not only have they never taught it ever before, they probably never thought of the misconception that they're all going to have and the, and the different ways they're going to need to do it. So, um, you know, if we're asking what we can do for, for teachers, well, let's practice. and. As leaders, what can we do for our staff? Give them a space to practice. You know, CPD doesn't just have to be going on a course. It doesn't just have to be, you know, are we going to rewrite the scheme of work or look at this curriculum? 
Why can't it be? Let's practice doing this explanation. Okay, what possible misconceptions are there going to be? What's your new explanation? How are you going to tackle that? Let's practice that in a safe environment, low stakes, like retrieval practice. Let's do it. Let's do it again and again and again, because that's the sort of CPD that's really going to help someone not feel stressed about walking into a classroom. At my end, you know, you often see the stress coming at exam classes. You know, am I preparing my students well enough? Have I explained this? Or the course has changed. I've never taught this topic before and it's really difficult. And I never learned it when I was at school, nor when I was at university. All of those things are stressful. So let's practice, 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 like the students, practice what we preach, low stakes retrieval, low stakes practice, because when it really counts, we can then do it, even though we will still have the stress response. Yeah, whenever you were speaking, that was the first thing that came to mind was the idea that that sensation of being a teacher for 10 years having things mastered and having so much committed to to memory and how can you almost shortcut yourself there you know so I think yeah I'm going to link that blog post and then any early career teachers you know can uh, you know look at the principles but equally you might have chance over the summer to write a, a an ECT specific blog post that we could, that we could post as well Ooh. Yeah, okay. I've got, I've got some time over the summer. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and do something. Oh, God. Now you put me under pressure. But yeah, okay, good idea. Yeah, there's quite a stress-inducing <laughs> episode recorded. Indeed. June, we had a wonderful time in Dusseldorf. You had some fantastic speakers. And, I mean, all the people there were really keen to engage with evidence-informed practice and lots of wonderful conversations. What does the future hold for research at Deutschland? I hope we hope to have another one. Uh, certainly uh, look to do a, another event next year. I think, you know, as I said, right at the beginning, the reason we're, we're kind of ready to do something like this is because the school and the staff are ready. They use, you know, research to inform their practice. But actually, I think Germany as a whole, um, there are some amazing schools. We've got some amazing schools, um, international schools and, and non-international schools. Um, but there is a... There's a huge, huge um, kind of hangover of old practices. You know, I, I have had in my five years, I've had uh, more conversations with parents than I care to, care to think about, about learning styles. You know, it is taught or was taught, like it was in the UK, in, in German teacher training. Students undergo learning styles assessments to understand their learning style. And when parents come and say, you know, you haven't assessed my child's learning style, it's like, oh, wow, this is know okay where do i where do i start with this and and you know part of the reason why again we, we invited parents to our event and a few did did come which was fantastic because actually we have a duty to bring that kind of evidence not just to our teacher community because that's all very well and good but actually to the wider community and, and i mean parents students uh, and also you know even some schools in the vicinity or a bit wider afield because i don't know we we often get hung up on on competitor schools or, or things like that but for me, you know, we're educators. We want all of our students to do well. And if something like learning styles is so prevalent in a country, I think we have a moral imperative to, to resolve that situation. And then the next question is, well, if learning styles is happening, what else is happening? And what else don't they know? And, and you know, I don't think anyone's foolish enough to say that we've got all the answers from research, far from it, but at least we're having those conversations. So what do I see next? I, I hope it gets bigger and, and better. I hope COVID can, can not decimate some of the attendees, which would be nice. Um, uh, but yeah, so next steps, I'd love to get, I'd love to do another one next year, get uh, a bigger variety of, of speakers, have more people attend, um, just to kind of open up 
of the world of research informed practice uh, to the wider community. Um, and, and if staff can just take away one, two, three things that they then go and implement, um, then, then it's all been worth it. So it's almost habit forming, you know, once people in Germany realize this is going to happen every year, yeah. they'll want to get involved more and more and more, won't they? I hope so. I really hope so. And I hope that we've also sparked, you know, we had, we had a couple of people from the school speaking and, you know, when colleagues, we have a sister school in Cologne and Munich and when colleagues see kind of uh, staff from, from Dusseldorf speaking, they're like, well, hang on a second. This is what's happening in your school. I can do that too. And, and suddenly you start this kind of, and it's not even about being competitive. It's just the kind of, you open this option. There is this option to go and speak about what fantastic things you do in your, in your classroom. And then you get to go and hear other people do it. And, and like you say, it's this kind of snowball effect. And, and if people can kind of really, if people know it's a fixture and they know that they can come and they can get, you know, a whole whack of CPD in one day and speak to so many amazing people and make so many connections, well, it, it can only be a, a positive thing for, for everybody involved. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's been, it's been fantastic for, for the school. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I know that staff got loads out of it. And it's been really... Uh, eye-opening for some honestly uh, but it's been really kind of refreshing for others to say hang on a second no no I, I do that I, I do do that already and, and I am using the research correctly and and what they've just said is exactly how I use it this is amazing maybe I'm better than I thought it was maybe actually do you know what uh, you know gives them a bit of confidence and I think all of those things are fantastic outcomes nice and I, I, you know everyone who was there could see how tirelessly you and your team worked to organize and so I'm sure everybody in attendance was extremely grateful If I said that I had the power to grant you any speaker in the world, but they would have to present all of the sessions, so it's almost like a, a one-person research ed monkey paw offering, so to speak, who would you request? Oh, is it selfishly for me, or, or who do I think would be best served for the for the community? Because <laughs> maybe both. <laughs> maybe both. I mean, okay, I'll go for the community if I was to have. If I was to have one person, because I know that they could, they would be able to give so many sessions that would be amazing. I, I have to pick Dylan William. There's, there's no other way around it. I, I can't see past him. I, I mean, I, I just find, I think he'd be fascinating uh, to hear talk about a variety of different things. And, and he's so, so grounded and so measured. Yeah, at the same, for, so, same time, so insightful that I think staff would get something out of every single session. So uh, if we're talking about the community, I'd pick, I'd pick him. Um, on a selfish point of view, uh, it would have very little to do with teaching, but it might have quite a lot to do with education. Um, I pick someone like Sam Friedman. I think he'd be fascinating to hear talk. Um, I mean, I know he doesn't just talk about education, um, but just understanding the, the back end machinations of, of kind of policy and, and the reality and what was thought of and expected and then reality, I think he would be a fascinating person uh, to hear speak about a multitude of, of things. Um, but I also think, and this is going to be, I was thinking about this, who, who would be the most challenging for myself? Um, I don't know if you know her, um, but uh, she's called Kate Finlayson. Um, she, she, I kind of, I don't know how I got followed her and, and we follow each other, but she, she home educates her children and she's in, but she's deeply involved in, in kind of edgy Twitter and her, her take on it, it just challenges me to be, to think better uh, and to think more deeply about things because um, it's such a different approach to schooling to what I'm involved in. And yet everything she says is really considered and thoughtful. And, and you're like, actually, yeah, do you know what? We should be thinking about these things more. So, you know, 
I don't, I'm not so necessarily she's a, she's a big name like Dylan William, but I think she's she's someone who I think would speak very uh, measuredly, considerately, and would challenge everyone to rethink their approach to how we see education. Nice, great choices, great, great <laughs> choices. You know, um, I think yeah, you've, got, you've definitely covered all those bases, and yeah, it'd be fantastic listening to Sam Braven talking. Yeah, so what six sessions in a day? I'd definitely yeah. do that if he was doing it's all six one, sessions. Just one long session, just one really long session. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. Oh God. Oh God. We need lunch. We need lunch. But other than that, it'd be great. <laughs> but, I mean, it's been fascinating, start to finish. Is there anything you think? teachers need to know about stress and its impact in, on learning in the classroom before we sort of wrap up? Um, I think I think I, I, one thing I didn't mention at the beginning was was kind of what is the biggest cause of stress um, in a real life situation? You know, uh, we talked about, you know, injecting people with cortisone and we talked about um, giving people drugs to prevent stress. But I think one thing I forgot to mention was the kind of the, the big meta-analysis done in 2004 about the causes of stress, um, and I mentioned it kind of at the beginning of my talk, um, uh, Research at Deutschland, which was um, the idea of there being two ma major things that cause stress um, in young people, and that's social, uh, social evaluative threat um, and uncontrollability. And I think this is important for teachers because it kind of highlights that the two biggest things to cause stress are the things that happen in schools on a daily basis. So social evaluative threat is where um, there's a, a risk that some aspect of your identity could be judged negatively. So if you think yourself as clever um, and uh, there's a chance that others will think you're not clever, then that causes major stress. If you think that you're good at football and there's a chance that people will consider you not to be, major stress. And it applies to everything. Do they think you are um, you know, good at doing X, Y, or Z? And there's a chance that you're not. That causes so much stress that you'd actually rather not do it. And the idea that you are being evaluated by your peers uh, is one of the biggest causes of stress in all the research that's you know, uh, on stress that's been done. Um, as, and that's the result of a meta-analysis on that. That sounds awfully like school, right? <laughs> you know, think about students in school. They care most about what their peers think, you know. And so if we're putting students in a situation whereby their peers can judge them, that is going to be stressful, which, which I think links back into this idea of low stakes um, retrieval practice. You know, we need to lower the stakes. We need to make it not about judging people for being clever or hardworking or good at something. Because when we do that, there's that kind of threat of being evaluated by your peers. But uh, it's also important because we don't want to highlight when someone gets something wrong. So we talk about how we're going to do low stakes retrieval practice, you know, doing on a mini whiteboard where you can rub it out or where only you can see it is, is, is key. Not asking people to peer assess each other. You know, peer assessment is a wonderful tool for helping students to give feedback to each other, but also to kind of learn about the marking process, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you're placing a student and saying, right, you're going to do this, and then you know that your peer is going to look at this and mark it, that can be awfully stressful. And suddenly you've ramped up the stress just before you're asking students to retrieve something. So hang on, why are we doing that? If we're doing retrieval practice and we want it to be low stakes, let's keep that down. Let's keep that stress level down and say, okay, you're going to do it. Only you are going to see it. Only you're going to mark it. It doesn't matter whether you get it right or wrong, but you're going to do it because the act of practicing is the thing that's going to help you improve. And there's loads of things about, um, you know, test enhanced learning and 
Uh, there's loads of studies out there that, you know, the very act of just having a guess actually can help you improve your memory long term. And so we don't need students to see each other and how well they do. We can keep it super low stakes and, and remove that socio-evaluative threat. Uh, the second thing I would say is about uncontrollability. So that's the second um, biggest cause of stress, whereby response behavior, um, you know, if I do X, Y happens, that's, you know, that's huge control. If I do X and I know Y is going to happen, brilliant. But one of the biggest causes of stress is if I do X and I don't know what's going to happen, that stresses me out. Well, if we know that, then, then let's be consistent. And I think this is one of those things we haven't really talked about behavior management much. But the reason why clear behavior management policies work in part is because obviously they're easy to follow, but two, they decrease the stress for the student. If I throw my pen across the room and I know that I'm going to have to do, I don't know, I'm going to have to leave the room or I'm going to get a detention. Yeah, okay, I can still choose to do it. That's fine. But I'm not stressed about the outcome. If you're stressed about what the outcome is going to happen, then you kind of really, really kind of playing with the student's um, physiological response to stress. Okay, maybe throwing a pen across the room is not the best example. But um, let's say if you fail a test, you don't know what's going to happen. I, am I going to ring home? Am I going to tell you off? Am I going to, you know, if I ask you a question, you can't answer it. And it was based on the homework. If you don't know what's going to happen, if the if the outcome could be that I shout at you for not doing your homework, or if the outcome could be that I mock you, or the outcome could be that your peers laugh at you, well, that's not great. That's stressful. Um, if the outcome is, it doesn't matter. No worries. Thanks for having a go. Brilliant. Let's move on. Look how brave that was. Fantastic. We use positive emotions. Well, that's significantly less stressful. I'm actually not advocating for cold calling uh, <laughs> when it comes to retrieval, um, but certainly cold calling for, for aspects is, is part of our, you know, our, our daily kind of approach to teaching and learning and, and cold call has its place. But if the outcome of, of that cold call is unknown to the student, they are going to be stressed. So I think for me, uh, I forgot to mention this right at the beginning, but I think it is hugely important. But the reality is there's two main things that cause stress and that's social evaluative threat and uncontrollability. And what we can do to minimize those two things in the classroom can go a long way to decreasing the stress response, which by definition uh, will help our students uh, retrieve information. So sorry for not mentioning that sooner. Um, I probably should have done. Um, but uh, I hope that's also useful uh, to people listening. No, I think they're almost like the threads that tie everything together. So I think it's a really good way to end. It's almost okay. You've, you've got all this information, but here are two things that are really, really important. You know, like you said, Sounds just like school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thank you so much for joining me today. It's no been worries. a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Kieran. It's been, uh, yeah, I hope, uh, hope the listeners find it interesting. I hope that uh, I've uh, performed well enough on camera. Uh, <laughs> that's been stressful. Uh, but no, it's been a really enjoyable experience. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, genuine pleasure. And uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and, and, and uh, talking more.